You know, young people are so wonderfully independent today. My generation was taught that respect for elders, parents, teachers, ministers, the president, meant accepting whatever they said as fact. Children were to be seen, not heard. Well, I was a little different, and at an early age, I learned that by questioning, and only by questioning, could I separate fact from fiction. Since I constantly questioned all established principles and methods, I wasn't too popular with my teachers. And after enough rebukes, I escaped into daydreams to ponder the questions in my own mind. I believe that elders should be respected, particularly now that I am one. <laughs> and we should learn from the knowledge of others and their experience. But always, always seek the truth and a better way. The first major question I asked was shortly after I became a chest surgeon in the 1950s. I wondered, why do people with a diseased esophagus have to be fed through a rubber tube inserted into their stomach rather than eating normally? And out of that came the answer to construct a new esophagus using part of the stomach, which restored the ability to eat food. And I'm happy to say that 30 years later, that operation is still in the new textbooks and is widely used. During World War II, I joined the US Navy because I love ships and the water. I ended up, as you might expect, as one of 12 US Navy and Marines assigned to a Chinese guerrilla army, riding a horse in the Gobi Desert of Inner Mongolia. <laughs> one of our Chinese soldiers was shot in the chest, and he died in my care, and I never forgot it. And 15 years later, in the 1960s, when I had become a chest surgeon, I remembered his death, and my question was, why are chest wounds fatal? And out of that came the Heimlich chest drainage valve, a very simple thing. All it is is really what we used to call the, a rubber tube, the Bronx cheer or the raspberry. It allows blood and air, would you pass around? It allows blood and air to leave the chest and not, and not come back in when you put a tube in and attach the valve, and therefore the person doesn't die. And I'm most gratified to be able to say that I was told and received a commendation from the Army that the Heimlich chest drainage valve saved hundreds of lives in Vietnam. It's widely used now throughout civilian and military practice. I'd like the valve back, by the way, when it's through. It only, it only costs $1.50, and you throw it away. $1.50, think about to save a life, and the United States and the Soviet Union are each going to spend a trillion dollars to destroy all humanity in a better way if they can find it. The question of the early 1970s was why were thousands of people choking to death? And out of that came the Heimlich maneuver with which I will enjoy showing you with Carol. <laughs> Eat your hearts out, gentlemen. For many years, more recently, after observing people on oxygen therapy tied to a, what they call their leash, an oxygen tube going to a tank, I asked, why are people with emphysema and other chronic lung diseases confined to bed? And out of that came the new microtrach, a very simple device, 
I'm pleased to say it was passed by the FDA in September and will be out and available to all physicians in about a year. And this allows people who work and find to get out and live a relatively normal life, hunt, fish, mix socially. It was my wartime experience, though, of 40 years ago that has now raised the most important question. I left China in 1946, aware that my life had depended on our Chinese allies. And three years later, in 1949, Americans and Chinese were taught to hate each other. And we went to war in Korea and 52,000 Americans, and I don't know how many equally young and fine Chinese boys died. And then we were at war in Vietnam where 58,000, not with the Chinese, but they supplied the North Vietnamese. 58,000 Americans and 3 million Vietnamese were killed because our leaders warned that the Chinese communists would control all Indochina. If Americans had questioned this belief, they would have learned that for 2,000 years, the Chinese and Vietnamese had been enemies. And for 1,000 years, the Chinese haven't been able to cross that border. Four consecutive presidents perpetuated the myth that the Chinese would dominate Indochina and millions of human beings died. And in 1973, President Nixon went to China and we became friends and trading partners, so much so that last year, President Reagan agreed to sell nuclear technology to our allies now, the Chinese. An analysis of previous wars provided many examples of how political leaders throughout history manipulated their people into an unnecessary war when peaceful resolution of the conflict was a valid alternative. The question I've been asking for the past 10 years, therefore, is why are the United States and the Soviet Union building for nuclear war? World peace hinges on seeking an answer to this apolitical, non-military question, yet instead of determining the cause of the conflict, we're blinding ourselves with discussions of missiles and nuclear warheads. Arms control talks, though desirable, are not concerned with seeking to prevent war, but with what weapons we will fight the next war. There appear to be no official discussions on how we can attain peace. People are invariably startled when they realize that world leaders are not considering this basic question. Recently, at a conference on East-West trade, I posed the question to the Deputy Minister of Trade of the Soviet Union, and he replied, I wish my ambassador were here. I don't know the answer. There's a saying that the answer is to question. Simply asking the question convinces most people that the only sane cause for the United States and the Soviet Union is to develop a peaceful, peaceful relationship now. Asking the question clarifies the fact that there is no rational justification for a continuing arms race that brings us ever closer to annihilating life on this planet. The fact is there's nothing special about the present situation. The cause of impending nuclear war is no different from previous conflicts. After each war, the two most powerful surviving nations or groups of nations prepare for the next war. England against Spain in the 16th century. Spain, England fought France for 100 years in the 18th century. England and France together against Germany for two world wars. Since World War II, the governments of the United States and the Soviet Union have been the antagonists. The present course is leading to nuclear war and total destruction of both countries, or at the least, to mutual economic disaster and military, as military expenditures increase, while most of our best scientists devote their efforts to new weapons systems. 
At this time, we are deeply troubled by hijacking, killing, and war involving developing nations. How can we expect this violence to end if the two superpowers don't know how to learn to live together in peace? In 1959, President Eisenhower said, I like to believe that people in the long run are going to do more to promote peace than our governments. Indeed, I believe that people want peace so much that one of these days their governments had better get out of their way and let them have it. That day is long overdue. The United States and the Soviet Union are capable of reversing the historic trend toward war that has been the fate of so many previous international confrontations. If these two nations develop a peaceful relationship, our science and technology will create a better world for America and all peoples, a prosperity never before envisioned, enhancing life both materially and spiritually. To reach that goal, we must have the courage to question political leaders. You and I must enlist world public opinion to press President Reagan and Soviet General Secretary Gorbachev for definitive answers to the question, why are the United States and the Soviet Union building for nuclear war? Thank you. Okay, um, when I was being CPR certified a little while ago, I noticed that the Red Cross um, is still recommending uh, four back blows before performing the Heimlich maneuver. And I seem to recall that there was some dispute in the medical community about that. Would you care to comment on that? Yes, the back blows were a mistake of the Red Cross for many years. And it was shown that actually with Newton's law, to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you hit someone on the back, an object in the throat is going to wedge tighter or go down deeper into the lung. It was a mistake, and they've, in truth, just tried to cover it up. I'm happy to say there's going to be a meeting in uh, July where hopefully they seem to sound as if they're ready to give it up because it has cost many deaths. The whole idea of the Heimlich maneuver was that it always works by pushing an object from the throat out toward the mouth. Yes. Yes, um, Mr. Heimlich, I, I, it's wonderful how we can um, appreciate all the powers that we have to ask questions of our leaders, and I see that you probably have done much of that. It's, it's hard to understand sometimes, as you say, that there's no rational justification for things going on. Have you found that you've gotten any rational answers, or what have been the answers that you've gotten when you've challenged our leaders as to why they're pursuing this nuclear holocaust or whatever? Uh, the first answer from senators, congressmen, Indira Gandhi, who, whoever, and large audiences is a blank look. They just haven't thought of the basic question as to why we are doing this. So the question itself is primarily the answer. One good answer was that we don't trust each other. Well, the next question is, why don't we trust each other? There's always another question to get to the basis of it. I must say that my own answer has been that the problems, as in with all wars, is very much economic antagonistic competition, and that it's time to do away with that and increase trade. I took certain steps among with other people that helped influence President Reagan to lift the sanctions against grain and Caterpillar tractor sales for pipeline tractors uh, to the Soviet Union. That was done. And the sanctions against underwater uh, dr uh, oil drilling equipment have been lifted. Fishing sanctions have been lifted. And more recently, we've agreed to sell the Soviet Union 60,000 
personal computers. So we're beginning to move. And also, I met with Secretary of Commerce Baldrich in December, and he very much wanted to increase trade, and he told me that he was, and he did, meet in Moscow, uh, in Moscow uh, to, with a letter from the President to increase our trade. So it's moving in that, that direction. If we can bring the trade up, would you believe, to a mere $15 billion, 375,000 Americans would be employed. If we brought it to $50 million, can you imagine us destroying each other? No way. As a matter of fact, the only way that we can correct the trade deficit today, really, we're not going to sell much more to Japan or to Europe. The Soviet Union pays hard currency that they get from their oil and natural gas. And that's the best way that we can help ourselves to correct the trade deficit. So it's moving. Just get out there and ask the question, demand that the question be answered, and I think that will provide you a solution. Thank you. Over here. Uh, Dr. Heimlich, I have two questions, first relating to your speech and the second one relating to your background. Um, on the first one, during your speech, you seem to present a um, very humanitarian, um, very simplistic view of the uh, crisis between the United States and Russia. I was wondering um, if, to get these barriers broken down, you would have to have a communist totalitarian, uh, totalitarian, uh, totalitarian uh, <laughs> uh, um, government um, coexisting with our capitalist system. Uh, wouldn't, that, wouldn't you think that that would cause a change in either one or the other, and would it be right? to force our capitalistic views on their, on their um, system and their people. And my second question is uh, about your, your uh Can I answer computers? the first? OK, go ahead. All right. I mentioned China. Communist China were so terrible that we went to war, and all these people were killed. We have not been to war, really, with the Soviet Union. And yet we're able to have a great relationship with communist China. And I assure you, I was there a year ago. They are a communist nation, with a few changes being made in the delivery of goods, a step toward capitalism perhaps in that area. But the government is a communist nation. No problem. And we get along with Yugoslavia. Well, isn't it so we are just really trapped in tradition. Isn't it just a different kind of communism, though? Because I know the communism in China is not exactly the same as it is in Russia. I can tell you that uh, 19, in the 19... Um, uh, 60s, in the 1950s, I should say, 19, late 1940s, that everything that you're saying about Russia was said in spades with China. In fact, there was a saying that those students who are smart will, uh, who are optimists, will study Russian. Those who are pessimists will study Chinese, because we knew that they were going to take over the world. So if you think that there's a difference, look, look into it. There, there is a difference, obviously, and there's a difference between all countries. And there is a difference between capitalist governments. Some are dictatorships. So the question is, are we going to survive, or are we going to destroy this wonderful, wonderful world? OK, I think uh, we can all agree that you made some very fine points and a very good speech. And they say that you are the sum total of your experiences in life. And what I'd like to know is, did you gather your opinions through your military experience, basically, or is it just totally your uh, view to question everything? Because sometimes the, your military experience tends to Harden your heart or, you know, do whatever. And I'd just like to know if, if your views on Russia, et cetera, were kind of influenced through military more so than anything else, just questioning in general. 
My experience, uh, the military experience, had a great effect because I had wonderful friends among the Chinese. As a matter of fact, the daughter of the general I fought, who, who fought, we fought together uh, on the same side, and, uh, is visiting us next week. And we visited her in China. They're wonderful, wonderful people. And then to see these falsities, these untruths, cause us to go to war and have young people die. And I thought back, and I remembered, I was 23, 24, and I thought back and thought, the best part of my life, and I tell this to you, because it's going to be the best part of your life, was after that. And uh, I don't think you should let the old people, the old men particularly, take your lives away. So all I'm saying, it is practical, by the way, to not be afraid and to try to love everybody in the world. It is possible. Thank you. Thank you.